Hi, everybody. Welcome to Freshwater Perspectives. Today, we'll be talking about road salt, why it's used, what it's used for, and also the environmental impact that it may have on local waterways. So stay tuned. We're back. Another week, Matt. How's life? Do you have any updates? Because I don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, nothing really, honestly. Just another week down. Yep. Uh, TA is going all right. You know, Rachel started her, so she's doing a rotation over in at a clinic in Georgia right now. So she's kind of doing like an externship. So she's got an hour drive and she loses an hour going from Alabama to Georgia. So she's waking up at about five o'clock in the morning right now. So. I forgot about that. I forgot that there's mm -hmm. the, the Georgia border um, goes in yeah. an hour. It actually isn't on the border. It is like oh, 10 or 15 miles across it? the Alabama border. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know why. Uh, I always thought it was like the Chattahoochee was that was the border well, but it's not maybe i'm wrong again why am i always wrong <laughs> sorry dude, i'm gonna be right about something i'm just i just like absorbing knowledge i'm sorry no no matt always corrects me on this sorry um, man um so i will i do have a little bit of i i was i did find some more news so you did an article or a podcast actually a whole podcast episode about pfas and pfos pollution if i'm not mistaken Yes. And the state of Pennsylvania actually just announced that it's doing a huge crackdown on PFAS and PFOS pollution. And who knows, really? Maybe it's because they, they listened to our, our podcast a couple weeks ago. But... Yeah, no, definitely not <laughs> like it has been in the, the hopper for the last couple of years. <laughs> it's probably like, no, it's definitely us. They're like, man, these guys know what they are doing. <laughs> what? How do you say that? PFOS? <laughs> Oh my God. I also have, in lieu of a, a little banter, mm -hmm. um, I have a little fun, keyword fun, 15 surprising facts about winter weather. Oh, okay. Can I, real quick, can I, can I finish this about the, uh, so yeah, so Pennsylvania is adopting new maximum contaminant levels for PFAS and PFOS in drinking water, which are now at 14 and 18 parts per trillion uh, parts per trillion respectively and those are equal to 14 and 18 nanograms per liter which is surprisingly low but I, but the, but it's good because these are forever chemicals and they can and they can accumulate and i think it's really nice to see states slowly adopt these guidelines and pennsylvania joins another 22 other states across the u.s including your home state of minnesota riley and my home state of new jersey and uh, if you look at the map, it's pretty much all of the East Coast except Georgia, a lot of the Midwest, and all of the West Coast. There's not a lot going on in the middle of the country as far as PFAS and PFOS uh, regulations. Yeah, interesting. I know the EPA is doing a lot of initiatives too. I would assume mm -hmm. within a short period of time, everyone will have um, some kind of legis or legislation. Um, yeah, you hope so. Yeah, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, policies enacted. I think, yeah, I think it's coming. Um, and I think EPA too um, will 
will have some say in that too, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly and saying the right things. But are you good? You good, Matt? Anymore? Yeah, I'm good. Go ahead. What's your what's your fun little piece? <laughs> yeah. So because um, we'll be talking a lot about winter today. Okay. And okay. um, I didn't have a banter, like I said. So here's some facts about weather. That's a little more not so dry. And um, hopefully this will lighten the mood a little bit, but uh, <laughs> this is not scientific in the slightest. This is from Mental <laughs> Floss, and I can't give homage to who wrote it because it just says staff. So they didn't even want to be on this post. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know um, that snowflakes can come in all sizes, Matt? I guess I guess I did. <laughs> <laughs> they could be smaller than a penny, uh, the width of a human hair. But um, witnesses of a snowstorm in Keenoch, Montana, Fort Keenoch, um, claim that milk plan size crystals fell from the sky. And this would be about 15 inches wide, if true. What? <laughs> no way. You see? Is it true? I don't know. No, 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 no citations. So um, <laughs> do you know that um, when snow falls... Which one's heavier, rain or snow? Which one's heavier? Which one reaches like the ground first? Well, no, which one? Which one's heavier? Like so, how, I'll, I'll say it this way: one one inch of rain. What do you think that's equal to in the inches of snow? Oh, it's like an inch of rain is a foot of snow. Is what is what the they usually tell you. Now this one's ten inches, but yes. Ah. So that is why everyone, if you if it rains a couple inches in the summer, that is crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not, I don't want to say uncommon, but like a foot or more, like that's just an inch of rainfall ish, mm -hmm. you know? Um, mm -hmm. so that's interesting to think. Do you know that yeah. thunder snow is real? Has anybody heard of thunder snow? I have not heard of thunder snow. I think when I was younger there, I heard thunder when it was snowing once. Um, hmm. it's a rare winter weather phenomenon, uh, common near lakes. But um, this is when warm columns of air rise from the ground, form turbulent storm storm clouds in the winter, potential for thunder snow. I just like the name. Yeah, I like it too. That's a great band name, thunder snow. Now, which one falls slower? The I guess a up rate. This is the question that you were asking before: rain or snow? Which one? Which one goes faster? Which one goes slower? Well, rain. Yeah, I would I would think <laughs> rain falls faster because that just snowflakes are. It's not that they're lighter, because that's not how physics works, but there's just more drag, I feel like. on a Yeah, it's like that fun. We used to have a <laughs> gym teacher who would have these little fun mental games. And he's like, which which one falls far, like quicker, the a pound mm -hmm. of bricks or a pound of feathers? Mm -hmm. It's like, they both weigh the same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this one, yes, snow can fall one to six feet per second. Um, huh. It could take a couple hours to reach the ground. Wow. Yeah, huh. Uh, next one here we're on number six everyone so hopefully you <laughs> like this otherwise i deeply apologize um so temperature dropping that happens right mm -hmm. and it can be fast the most the quickest fastest temperature drop ever recorded was january 10th 1911 in rapid city south dakota it was on january 10th of all things 55 degrees pretty warm wow yeah. in south dakota and um over the course of 15 minutes, a cold front brought the temperatures down to eight degrees. What? Still the largest 
cold snap in history. Literal cold wow. snap. Yeah, that that's definitely a cold snap. I would agree. Wow. Mm-hmm. Here's one that's going to be related to what we're talking about, and that's salt. Um, more than 22 million tons of salt are used on U.S. roadways each winter. And how many pounds, this might be just a crazy guess for you, Matt, but how many pounds does that equate to per U.S. resident? Per U.S. resident? And what, what, what was the number? So 22 million tons spread on U.S. roads per person, you know, 22 million tons divided by um, U.S. population. This is what I'm looking for. Can't do that mental math in my head that quick. I'm going That's to fine. say... Guess, like, guess. 30 pounds per person 137 pounds of salt per person each winter is spread i was that is a lot where next one where do you think words rapid firing where where is the snowiest city on earth where's the snowiest city yes oh that's a good question is it buffalo new york or syracuse nope nope we uh where is it amori city in northern japan receives more snowfall on the planet, citizens are pummeled, their words, with 312 inches or 26 feet of snow each year. Wow. That's yeah. a lot of snow. That's a lot of snow. Um, here's here's number 10 from them. Snowballs sometimes form themselves. Um, something strange <laughs> happened earlier this year in Northwest Siberia. Siberia. Uh, mysterious giant snowballs began washing up on the beach along the Gulf of Oob, OB, I don't know if I'm saying that right. It turned out that the ice orbs were formed naturally by the rolling motions of wind and water. Uh, spheres nearly three feet wide um, washed what? up on shore. I guess. Yeah, you got, you're having too much fun with this, I'm seeing <laughs> clearly. <laughs> to be honest, everyone, I didn't get to like the last couple ones. So <laughs> I was like, this would be good. <laughs> Um, windshields calculated using a precise formula. I didn't actually know that. And they have the formula written out. They don't have what the variables are though. So it's just like 35 plus 0.6 T. <laughs> so I'm going to guess temperature and velocity or wind speed must be the, okay. what uses it. That makes um, sense. so that, that real feel temperature, cause sometimes it does feel like it's made up windshield chill. <laughs> um, it's, it's real. There's a formula. They put it here. They copied and pasted it. So thank you. Hmm. And some cities can dispose of snow in creative ways. If you are in the north, you know that snow pileage up can be a huge problem. And some cities have even employed snow melters. I've never seen one of these. It uses Hmm. hot water to melt 30 to 50 tons of snow an hour. Hmm. It's quick. It's a single machine can cost $200,000, burn up to 60 gallons of fuel in an hour of use. So it, you know, just think of like dump chunks and I don't know, it's dumping all the snow and then it just melts it and I guess goes to the sewer. When you said snow melter, I kind of just pictured a guy, either one guy with a hairdryer, just like <laughs> with a giant pile of snow or just like with a garden hose with his thumb over it and just like, come on snow. I know. So do you know that physics, Matt, um, physicists have confirmed that there's a ideal ratio for making snowman building and it's the oh, ratio of, of snow to water. Okay. And you want to, 
a five to one ratio of snow to water, and that gives okay. you the best moistness for making a snow snowman. Okay. Uh, two things. One, I'm yeah. glad that I'm glad that you know science is doing its job, and we're answering these important questions. Yeah. But two, I feel like this is kind of nice because it it kind of puts credence. I feel like there are so many people out there that we all know that if it's like a powdery snowfall, they make horrible snowballs, and, yeah. and they don't they don't come together really good so yeah you do need a little bit of moisture in there so yeah mm -hmm. that's um and then the last one okay poor matt snowflakes aren't always unique and you know we we've all known that snow crystals they have these unique patterns but at least one instance of identical snowflakes was recorded in i don't know it says the record books <laughs> what what record book <laughs> such a i'm sorry it's lazy reporting i know it's so the bad record books and <laughs> 1982, two snowflakes collected from a Wisconsin storm <laughs> confirmed that there can be twins, <laughs> twin snowflakes. Um, and this is interesting. A Wisconsin storm, this is where they collected them, but it was at an atmospheric research center in Colorado. Um, I don't. So I will say, I feel like math, just the way that math works, the number of snowflakes that have fallen, like, in history, yeah, I think it's just a matter of, like, you know, there's already, do like, they talk about doppelgangers, like, there's people that, that look very similar, so yeah, then just the number of show snowflakes that have fallen, of course, there's going to be two that look the same. Hmm. I know, but there's no, so, not every snowflake is identical, poor. That's so sad. It sounds like you had a lot of fun with that, Riley. <laughs> That's uh, all that matters. It was fun. Okay, so after that fun little article let's let's get into the real meat of what we'll be talking about today and that is road salt and its effects on freshwater waterways and i guess going before going in, into this matt do you have any I, I bet you can think of what we're going to talk about do you have any fun salt and freshwater other than what you talked about <laughs> last week two <laughs> weeks ago now um, three weeks ago now wow um where you mentioned the california Salt Lake, forgot the name of it. Starts with a C, right? Uh, the Salton Sea. S. Yes. The S Salton that sounds like sea. a C. I was close. <laughs> I uh, don't have anything aside from what you are probably going to say, so I don't want to steal your thunder. Yes. So I think we all probably know that salt in water that's fresh is bad, but yeah. Let's expand yeah. upon this. So we're in the middle of winter, it's cold and i mean where i am and the that that you know um requires states counties governments private individuals um, many northern states they salt the roads driveways and other walkways to melt ice and keep the public safe so drivers pedestrians we can all think either a snowplow throwing down salt or brine um, or pedestrians you know leading to walkways we probably all have had one um, relative that has broken something slipping. I know I have. Um, so that's not never fun. But as it turns out, though, a lot of salt is needed to keep people safe. It is estimated that each, <clears throat> that the state of Michigan, it's estimated that the state of Michigan applies anywhere from 340,000 to 750,000 tons of salt Jeez. on the roads each winter wow so much so, so much you might get into this do we know so where is the salt where is all the salt sourced from oh 
I don't know. I didn't write that down. I'm gonna let me Google it right now. That that is very important. I wonder if it's just like rock salt. Like it is rock salt. I wonder if it's just salt mines or if there's any, you know, if there's any kind of sea salt. I don't know if that's. I don't know anything about rock salt to know like what's more desirable. What I would thought about right when you said that was like when we talk about desalination plants. Mm-hmm. Like boom, use that salt uh, for yeah, like road salt. Maybe they that's do. True. Yeah, maybe they do. Yeah. Um. Yes, it's mined from. It says ancient Sultan seas on this one. Um, I'm trying to okay. find a place where it actually. Is. Wow! Holy moly! There's somebody out there that's like us. I keep on seeing deposits left over after prehistoric oceans evaporate. Okay, it just says very. Okay, here's another one. Canada, CanadaSalt.com. Various mines all over the world. Okay. Um, so okay. yeah, they're mined. That's that makes sense to me. Oh, here we go. Notable mines we have by Cleveland under Detroit. This says under Detroit. And in New York State, Kansas, and Louisiana. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. No idea. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, salting has increased the safety um, of areas. So, it removes that ice. Uh, so, it increases safety, but unfortunately, aquatic research suggests that road salt has begun to make its way into freshwater lakes and rivers. I think we all know that, and we've all heard stories about that. Uh, you know, this makes these areas saltier and less ideal for fish and aquatic organisms. And we're going to discuss more specifically what what that what does that extra salt in freshwater systems mean? Um, and are, th are there alternatives to keep the public safe in winter in lieu of using salt? So a little bit before going into that, though, let's talk about how does road salt work? Um, do you know, Matt? <laughs> Um, I believe it lowers the, or yeah, the lower the melting point of, of the ice. Yes, Matt, you smarty pants. Okay. Jeez. Just take my thunder. <laughs> take my, take my, what do they call it? Snow thunder? <laughs> yeah. Steal your thunder. Steal my snow thunder. Um, <laughs> so road salt in most situations are sodium chloride. Road salt in most um, cases of sodium chloride, that's that's table salt, right? That's what we use for mm -hmm. food. But it can also mm -hmm. be calcium chloride. So hmm. other salts too, for those of you chemistry nerds out there, that I don't even want to say it. Chloride's involved in a lot of them, but it could be magnesium chloride. There's other um, salts. And I think there are other things can make salts as well. Um, mm -hmm. In this case, what we'll be talking about though is, the, you know, we'll really be... We'll, really be focusing on salts with that chloride ion attached to it. And that's a key okay. issue for fresh water. So chloride ions, um, they can be only tolerated by freshwater organisms at relatively low concentrations. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's finish the loop here with road salt. So as Matt said, yes, this causes the melting point of water to be lower. That's why salt is salt causes this. Um, this action allows for snow to melt even when temperatures are below freezing. Um, as it's been reported in an article by Scientific American, which was way better than the article I talked about before this, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so this melting of ice, what's interesting is that it, it lowers that, that melting point, but it also causes a chain reaction. So salt will melt ice into water. That water will dissolve more salt into that solution. And that more, more salt uh. dissolved into the mixture, the quicker the ice will melt. 
Yes, chain reaction. This is why you might see some trucks spreading brine or salt water mm -hmm. on your roads rather than chunks of ice to get the, the process going. That's mm -hmm. why some of them have those sprayers. Mm -hmm. So road salt, you just put it on the, the, the roads. Um, unfortunately, research has been finding out that, yeah, it's getting into freshwater waterways, be it streams, lakes, rivers. And the big issue of salt getting these freshwater systems is the amount of ions entering into the system. Specifically, we'll be talking about chloride ions, as I said. Chloride, it's naturally occurring in the environment. You know, it's a, it's mm -hmm. a naturally occurring um, element, and it's also in freshwater systems at very low amounts. And indeed, freshwater fish uses chloride, use chloride to regulate the ratio of ions in their, their bodies. This is osmotic and ionic regulation. If fish have grown to live in very low amounts of salt or chloride, I might use that interchangeably here, it might not be the most um, scientific thing to do, but I'm going to do it. And if there's too much chloride or salt in that, that environment, freshwater organisms have two options. Unfortunately, they got to get out of there or they're going to succumb to, it could be a variety of different reasons, but one of them is their un, inability to regulate their bodies of ions and fluids. And I think any biology class, if you've taken a biology class, uh, when you learn about osmosis, uh, for example, do you remember what those figures were like, <laughs> Matt? Yeah, so the I remember the thing that I was always taught is that water moves to dilute with osmosis. Yes. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, um, if you put a freshwater fish in the ocean, this is why fish, freshwater fish can't live in the ocean. Some, in most situations, we'll say that, um, because salt, that salt in the water, it sucks out the water in the freshwater fish, fish's mm -hmm. cells, okay? Mm -hmm. that, would, that would cause that cell to shrivel. So it's trying to maintain that water balance between both sides of a membrane. In this case, they're, they're, they're cells. Um, or if you think of all the cells in a fish, that the internal water of the fish and the external environment is going to try to balance out. There's so too much dissolved solids in the external environment. All that water is going to leave its body and it would shrivel, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's why you have salting as like a process for preserving meat. You know, it gets mm -hmm. rid of that, those fluids. So again, if, if salt is, gets into a lake, they have to leave the area or they die over time, so they cannot tolerate these conditions. And this is not going unnoticed, okay? So the EPA has begun to research how much salt freshwater organisms can take and withstand. And there's there are regulations. So for chloride, the EPA has set concentrations of 230 milligrams per liter. Um, anything above that would negatively affect aquatic life. And let's let's be clear that um, this is just one standard, but like, I mean, there's a whole variety of organisms. Some can tolerate salt better. Some can tolerate, can to, excuse me, some can tolerate salt um, at lower concentrations. There's just this, this is the metric that they provided. Makes sense? No, makes total sense. Yep. Let me. So, okay, let's, let's talk a little about when, when, when chloride gets into a freshwater lake, you know, why, what's, what's the, we talked about the tolerances of fish mm -hmm. um, and other aquatic life, you know, there's a certain amount of tolerance, but there's also some effects that it has on the, the limnological processes of a lake as well. So lakes mm -hmm. receiving too much chloride um, can, there, there's a couple of processes. First is mixing and turnover can be prevented from happening. So 
we've talked about turnover and different layers of a lake that can form. One of them can be thermoclines or like a temperature layer, but there can also be chemoclines like chemical layering as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you have too much chloride in a lake, those chloride ions, molecules, compounds are, are heavier than um, water molecules. And therefore, mm -hmm. um, within a lake, you got still got gravity and it'll go to the bottom of a lake with gravity. And this it's can, if you have a lot of chloride ions, this can really build up in a lake. And with this issue that can form such a deep layering or amount of chloride at the bottom of a lake that layers will form. How about I say like that? And mm -hmm. that, 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 that there, we got a, a zone, one zone of chloride, one zone of not, but that can be so profound that it will actually like prevent mixing from occurring, which is crazy to think about. Yep. This can also make changes in the oxygen within a lake as well. So if you have a lot of chemical, um, in this case, chloride building up, that can change how much oxygen can diffuse in that area as well. And this is the case for chloride. Um, so you might have a lower layer that is like a two pound effect. You can might have um, this chemical layering, but then also oxygen is going to decrease. So if you had freshwater organisms like mussels who can't move out of an area, um, that lower zone becomes anoxic. Um, that can that can really have an effect on those um, non-moving organisms. Yeah, um, and I think just to add on to that a little bit, so it's not un uncommon, and I think we've talked about, I know, I know we talked about this in the Lake Nios episode, where we talked talk about the layering of a lake, we kind of went into the details of that a little bit, like the epilimnion, that hypolimnion, and just kind of usually how that mixing regime works. So it's not unheard of, and it's... And in fact, really common to have lakes kind of be stratified and have these different layers. But the problem with the salts, as you're as you're talking about, is that layer gets so big and there isn't any mixing. So usually when you get that separation, it's only for a season or it's only for a couple months. And then the lake mixes and you get that reoxygenation and all the nutrients kind of move around a little bit more. But with these salts, it's just so extreme that you're those those different layers physically can't mix. Yes. Thank you, Matt. So yes, more eloquently stated than me. And that is hundred percent right. And um, <laughs> so this all begs the question though, are freshwater lakes getting saltier over time? So we know on a small scale that yes, um, definitely, you know, I think we all know like, oh yeah, that lake's really close to a, um, say there's a, a lot. I always think of like lots of Minnesota and you have all that snow accumulation or they're, they're um, <laughs> spreading salt, like on a, uh, I don't even want to say the name of like a certain store, but like big, big balls, right? You have all this cleared out um, parking lot stalls and you're like, how does that work? And like, that's because they use, you know, de-icer. Um, mm -hmm. And then like, where, where does that go? Come, you know, come springtime when everything melts and things get washed away and definitely knowing about like yeah if, i mean if you have a, a, a sewer line that's going directly into a, a lake for example you know that's that's where this is all going um but but more so the question is on a bro like a large scale are, are lakes getting saltier over time and in a research study conducted by dugan et al they looked at how salt concentrations chloride ions um, are changing in an oppressive 371 North American lakes. And wow. indeed, researchers found that lakes are getting saltier over time 
but there's a little bit of a nuance. Okay, so land use around a lake plays an important role as to how much salt is getting into that system. So lakes that had even 1%, 1% of their shoreline paved, um, so right close to the lake, they're at a much greater risk of salt entering into it. And the study found that 100 of the 371 lakes had at least some amount of their shoreline paved. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, the study concluded that many lakes will be above the EPA regulation of 230 milligrams per liter in the next 50 years. And this is, um, that's just one study, but there's other studies where we're not going to go into it. Um, but indeed, other studies have shown that there's a steady increasing of chloride concentrations within them, warranting further and urgent action. So that's in lakes. But there's also a road salt issue of groundwater and drinking water contamination. Wow. Sodium and chloride are found in groundwater naturally, just like in lakes. Um, but the salinity of groundwater can be increased by human inputs. And some scientific literature as early as the 1700s has, has found that this is occurring. And when we talk about road salt contamination, that's, that, you know, we're talking about there, there has to be for some reason that that salt is getting into the ground. And this can occur by groundwater recharge, for example. So if um, your groundwater, the, the inputs that's happening to recharge it, um, if there's salt contamination, this can, this can lead to drinking water coming from the ground to have that contamination. Okay, so there, we've talked about drinking water treatment plants as well, but like, um, you know, public municipalities, they can deal with removing chloride and sodium. So don't, don't fret too much um, that this is happening. Fret a little bit because um, <laughs> Matt mentioned before when we talk about um, this is just like for desalination plants. Um, to get rid of chloride and sodium ions, they use reverse osmosis. So this can, this can happen. You can get clean drinking water. Um, this, this pushes reverse osmosis. It pushes water through a small membrane to remove those salt particles. The issue is, is that it, it's really energy and cost intensive to do so. So you might be able to get clean drinking water, but it's going to charge more money and have more of an environmental impact in form of energy usage. So um, just like what we were talking about salt water and those, um, mm -hmm. you know, giant osmosis, um, I would love to see like a desalination plant. That'd be so interesting. From I, I haven't seen one in person, but I've seen you know pictures and videos. It just looks like a bunch of pipes running everywhere because you essentially have these long columns of the reverse osmosis filters. Um, it doesn't. I wouldn't say it looks super impressive, but I guess once they someone explains it to you, it is really impressive. Yeah, <laughs> and so that's you know people. Again, we've talked about this before. There's surface water drinking water inputs, and there's also groundwater drinking water inputs for like a um, a city, for example. You got this public municipality that's going to create those treatments. But really, if you're if you're on not on public municipality drinking water, really pay attention um, to well water and the well water you're using. People who are on well water, like really, really pay attention to your drinking water quality. And I'm not saying that people aren't, but it's it's just different and it, it um, you know, that private individual really needs to pay attention and um, salt water, salt getting into your water, that, that 
can really contaminate a well over time. And there are filters available. Just we talked about this for PFAS too, for PFAS going into private wells. Um, mm -hmm. It's just I, the idea is there's. I don't want to say there's filters for everything, but there's filters for a lot of things. It's just the idea that you need to know what the problem is, you know, on the front end and then get that filter. So, you know, you can um, talk to your water professionals as well as, you know, some counties, for example, can do this type of testing to make sure you know what's in your water and you can therefore get the protection you need. So, Matt, this is where we have salt in our water, for example, mm -hmm. that's bad. But, you know, you might be thinking, hey, Riley, what, what can you do to, you know, <laughs> reduce the salt usage? And yes. I'm not going to leave you without telling you some fun alternatives. So, okay. um, <laughs> Minnesota, like yay, Minnesota um, has been starting, the state of Minnesota has been looking into food byproducts to reduce the amount of traditional road salt being used. Uh, things like cheese brine beet juice, huh. coffee grounds, and pickle juice as alternatives to road salt have all been proposed. So how many pickles do you got to eat though? You know what I'm saying? Well, well, my, my other argument for that is that pickle juice, that's a salt, that's a salt, there's salt in there. That is exactly right. So um, yeah. again, Matt, Snow Thunder Gladfelter is taking my thunder away. <laughs> I mean, you're not really solving the issue as far as just changing where the issue is yes. coming from. So in this one article that is more, quote unquote, environmentally friendly, traditional um, alternatives to traditional road salt, but it's still salt. There might be mm -hmm. some nuance there. Coffee grounds isn't salt. Unless there's that's saltiness true. in coffee grounds. I don't know. I don't think so. Um, you're just... Right? That's your... That's I should your know. Although... <laughs> sorry um uh, yeah i would see I, how do the coffee grounds work i guess is my question how do coffee grounds work or yeah oh i think in this article i it's been a while but like i think that one was more for traction oh okay so, so like, kind of like kind of like when like salt yeah or excuse so me kinda, um gravel yeah some i know some cities put sand down yeah it's a big thing down south for some reason mm -hmm. um so Yes, these all have salt connected to it, so that's that's not good. There are other commercial de-icers, though, that are on the market. There are alternatives to road salt. Calcium, magnesium, acetate, CMA, is an effective de-icer. does not contain chloride ions. Okay. Um, it, it should be used with as little as possible, though, because it is still a chemical, though, so use it limitedly i think that's the moral of this all the stories i don't use yeah. at all um urea is also a useful de-icer um, but that can mm. harm plant life I mean, if you mm -hmm. get a bunch of urea into an aquatic system you're going to have a whole nother issue um, yep. so no silver bullet unfortunately and i think that's going to be i have some more but i want to really say right there that um from reading this there there is still ongoing um questioning of what what can you use as alternatives to road salt um mm. in short no nothing has been a, a large-scale alternative has not been found um so that leads us to again what can you do and i'm going to leave you with some tips to use less salt this is going to be fun <laughs> so authorities michigan state and uh state of minnesota 
Uh, there's tips to use less road salt. Number one tip, Matt. Here, here's fun. Give me, give me a couple tips of how to use less salt. Uh, drive less. No, no, don't have that one. No. Um, tips to use less road salt. Um, yep. I, What's I some guess I'm not. I'm. I'm not too well versed in this. It's been so long since I've been up north. Okay, number one, right on the nose, use less salt. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks, guys. So, so less less salt spread equals less salt reaching into the lakes. Uh, just shovel and uh, shovel off your areas, you dummies. Just kidding. <laughs> now, now I feel like an idiot. <laughs> Sand for traction. So you already said that one. Okay. I mean, so that's that's good. Um, we already talked about friendly de-icers. That's another one. This calcium magnesium acetate, for example. Um, use as low as possible. Here's another one, though, that is more so for your professionals, who Lord knows if they're listening to this. But um, So the nozzles on the back of, uh, um, I guess it doesn't need to be an actual like snowplow, but I just mm-hmm. usually see the like dual-use um, vehicles in the winter. Mm-hmm. And you might see some that are streaming out um, saltwater, brine. Mm-hmm. And so there's different types of nozzles apparently you can use. Some like are these um, broad spectrum fan nozzles. Apparently not mm-hmm. the best for trying to reduce the amount of salt spread all over. Um, oh. If you have stream nozzles, there it's a little more concentrated to where the area it's going. And this is really what this article is touting as to, to reduce the amount of saltiness spread. Hmm. I did have a question about the brine in, in, in any of your research. So I know when I was growing up in Jersey, brine was like, that was like the biggest thing everyone was starting to use. Cause they said it used less road salt. You know, you were using, you were just, you were using less of it. Uh, is, was there any credence to that? Like, is there actually less sodium chloride getting into waters with brine as opposed to just rock salt? Yeah, so I think that is the um, thing I mentioned in the beginning is you, if you have that combination of water and salt, it gets that mm-hmm. um, reaction started quicker. Okay. So it, the um, yeah, so it gets a reaction quicker and it starts melting quicker. Therefore, you're using less salt, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. That makes sense? Okay. So in that, that regard, yes. I mean, like, yeah, I guess it is you're physically using less salt i don't know if you have to like spread like pound for pound like you're gonna spread more watery brine but then it's just Mm -hmm. water so that's interesting to think about yeah i wonder what the balance is of like carting around so much brine water versus Mm -hmm. just salting i don't know yeah we're getting to the weeds (laughs) okay so two more know your air temperature um, temperatures below 15 degrees Fahrenheit make salting area ineffective in some cases. You'd have to, um, so if there was a couple negative 30 days uh, a little bit ago up here, like, yeah, it's just at that point, stuff stops working. And um, that chemical reaction, that you know, that salt melting ice, it, it's not going to work at that low of temperatures. So if you're say, oh, I'm not going to shovel, but I'm going to throw a bunch of salt down that's not it's not gonna work so <laughs> you gotta wait until temperatures get warmer before um you the salting would be worthwhile huh. and do not last one do not spread near water bodies so many states have regulations already as to how close salt could be spread 
um, to a water body. They're, they're picking up on this. Uh, University of Wisconsin researchers found that municipality enforcements um, often stretch 300 meters around a lake. Um, this one article from the University of Wisconsin, they, they're really suggesting that a 500 meter buffer or greater around water bodies. Um, this goes to the one study that I talked about briefly. Let me look for the name. The one started the, the Dugan et al. 2017 about all those um, 371 North American lakes. Uh, even that, you know, 1% pavement around the, all those lakes that really increase the amount of salt going in. And it's just that direct pathway. Um, if there's any direct pathway to say a local stream, a ditch, uh, that can really, really um, bring a lot of salt into a lake. So watch out for that. Makes sense. And with that, that's all I have today. Okay. I did have uh, a couple, a couple things, a couple queries, I suppose. Yes. So yes, I know. I mean, this is just a general kind of best practices when it comes to you know, in kind of a perfect world, this is how we want to treat our water bodies and whatnot. But has there been any research as far as like riparian zones and things like that? Because I'm not sure how well. Because I know we talk about riparian zones in reference to nutrient pollution. I wonder how much that would help with the chlorine pollution because i don't think the plants are taking up the chlorine so i don't know if that would actually help anything yeah no so i think it definitely helps it it's not it doesn't yeah so this is an interesting thought process it helps it to physically prevent it from getting into a lake or river okay but you would think um that chloride ion like just doesn't go anywhere at some point a heavy rainfall will will bring it into it so yeah if yeah. you don't mitigate how much chloride is in like your riparian buffer accumulating i wonder if that would alter how effective it is so maybe on the short term it does but on the long term i don't know yeah, that makes maybe. sense you know what i'm saying yeah That's like definitely point. definitely um those buffers around a lake is what they're like touting as to use as this alternative or a yeah. preventative measure. But yeah, mm -hmm. maybe we're thinking too far into the distance. And, yeah, and I'm, I am kind of curious. I mean, I guess if I had to guess, actually, I don't know. I'm not that much of an expert on the hydrology of the Great Lakes. Would you expect, I guess, like Lake Erie or Lake Superior to be, or one of the other ones to be more salty? Because I know, don't a lot of the ones flow into Lake Erie? Oh God, um, that's a good question. No, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on hydrology because I, I was I went, while you were talking, I was getting on to the idea of like, well, if the kind of water residence time was pretty low, then you could just get a lot of flushing out of that kind of chlorine, and maybe it make its makes its way back to the ocean. But I feel like with a lot of the big lakes that we're talking about, especially up north, that's just simply not the case. Ah, uh, yeah, wow. I don't even know an educated yeah. thing to say on this, but I will say, I'm wondering <laughs> like potentially a dumb thing to say, but like since Lake Superior is much deeper than Lake Erie, I wonder if like that chlorine because it sinks to the bottom is to the bottom. Mm -hmm. Not saying that's messing up, but like if you're talking like Lake Erie, if there a lot of mixing occurs and there's, you know, one of the, the reasons why like there's a, a lot of, um, Harmful algal blooms, for example. I wonder if that'll like 
makes the whole water column have more like if you talk about per liter like chlora chlorine per liter mm -hmm. like that chloride so there'd be more per liter within lake erie because it's, it's more mixed whereas mm -hmm. there might be con like higher concentrations in lake superior at the bottom but not mixed this could be the dumbest thought process though i'm not sure at all yeah, but yeah, uh, so that's all I got. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I mean, nice job, Riley. I mean, I think this is something that if people aren't, yeah, if people aren't aware of it, they need to be. But I really liked it. Um, also, sorry, on a complete random tangent, but I guess it's not super random because we talked about it last week. I still had a lot, I guess, a lot of the Cuyahoga River stuff on my search history. And for some reason, I found out. So there are three songs from the 70s, 80s, and 90s that each reference the Cuyahoga River being on fire at some point. <laughs> really? So Randy Newman, yeah, Randy Newman has a 1972 song called Burn On, which references the Cuyahoga River. R.E.M. has a 1986 song just titled Cuyahoga. And Adams, again, has a 1992 song titled River on Fire. Surprised so. Gordon Lightfoot didn't get in there. <laughs> I know uh, that's like perfect for him. He loves uh, this <laughs> Great Lakes events. <laughs> All right, uh, I think that's it for today, Riley. Nice job. I'll see you next week. Thank you.